Hello and welcome back everybody. Today we're going to talk about how rubber tires, pepper grinders, and physical therapy do have something in common. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Thank you guys for tuning back into Therapists in Motion podcast. Paul and Dan here today with the one and only Tim Spooner, and we are also joined from afar by Andrew Walquist. Andrew, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So I don't think anyone would debate the importance of education within our profession. We all know that when patients understand what they're trying to accomplish, they're going to be more likely to adhere and to follow through with the instructions you have. And if they are in agreement with your goals and your purpose behind therapy, you're most likely to be more successful. This is a pretty common concept that we talk about all the time. However, what happens when you have that patient who's not grasping the concept you're thinking about? We talk about us being neuromusculoskeletal experts all the time, but the individuals that we're working with have varying levels of education and varying levels of learning abilities. Uh, before this, Dan, you were talking about with some of your teaching experience, what was the thing they told you as far as how many different ways you have to be able to answer a single question? Yeah, so uh, during one of my clinical rotations in PT school, I was fortunate enough to be a adjunct professor in a physical therapist assistant program. And as I was prepping for material, prepping for lectures, um, my mentors slash supervisors started to instill in me that when a student asks a question, you better be prepared to answer that question in seven different ways. And let me tell you, that is very difficult to do especially when you don't have years of experience, one, treating a patient, and two, teaching. So being able to answer one question in seven different ways was definitely a challenge. For sure, but why Why seven? Not particularly the number. What, what's the thought process behind this? So I think the, the biggest thought process is, is trying to address the learning styles of the students, whether they are a cognitive learner, a tactile learner, a audio learner, a visual learner, um, and being able to come at it from a different perspective uh, a point of view, as well as potentially even provide an analogy for them that may assist in connecting the dots to something that may be they use on a regular basis or they're regular familiar with. Makes perfect sense. So Tim, I come in, I'm seeing you for physical therapy. You explain something to me, you explain it perfectly immaculately, and I give you deer in the headlights. What's your next step? What's your next thought? The... First step is that if I, if you give me the deer in the headlights look, is that I obviously spoke the information, but I did not communicate it to you. And so therefore I need to communicate it in a different manner. And whether that would be a different explanation, a visual drawing, or actually having you demonstrate it, um, or watch a video of it, whatever it would take to get you connected to the information so that you could finally say, I get it. That's what would be most important to me. So look back, reorganize, re-strategize, and see where we can connect and where we can be on the, the same page moving forward. Right. I wanted to ask Dan a question. You said that uh, you know your, your mentor said seven. Now that you've been practicing and have a lot of experience under your belt, is it seven or is it 77? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> uh, I should know better by now to expect the unexpected from Tim. Um, you know, I would say it's probably somewhere in between because there's there's times when you feel like you're saying the same thing over and over and over to a patient session after session after session and something just hasn't clicked yet. And so you've got to come at it a different way. And it was something actually I was just talking about with my student, Jeff, 
and he's like, gosh, I feel like I'm pounding my head over the table with these couple patients. I, I just can't get through to them. And so I said, well, take a different approach. Don't go down the same path you've gone the last four sessions. Come at it from a completely different angle. And he kind of looked at me a little bit of deer in the headlights like, well, I don't know how to come at it from a different angle. And I said, yes, you do. Think about how you would take that information. Um, because how you think they should take the information isn't working. Well, maybe you should think about how they should accept that information as opposed to how you would accept that information. So we'll see how he does. Um, so yeah, I would probably say it's somewhere between seven and 77 ways that you, you need to come about that. And I think that's a, that's a key, key thing to note, especially for a young clinician who is, who is, uh, who hasn't maybe developed those different, different, um, methods of speaking, but just to understand that getting frustrated is a reflection more on where you're at versus where the patient's at. The patient may not be frustrated and you just, you can use your creativity, your ability to, um, to, uh, connect with them in, in a different, different manner. And I, that's really, uh, one of the things that sparks me as a clinician is the, the ability to be creative, grab an iPhone and shoot a video, um, sing a song and dance with a little old lady. It really didn't matter um, as long as I could connect with them and get them to do what I wanted to do. And Andrew, you've been very successful as a, a mentor to young clinicians, as a clinical instructor to students coming through. Do you have any takeaways or things you want to make sure they understand from an educational standpoint uh, when they're done with their rotation or time or they're moving on to bigger and better things? Absolutely. I mean, I really like what Tim and Dan were just talking about, about having to really connect with the patient and have to talk to them and communicate with them at a level that they understand. And to a certain extent, I believe that requires a lot of empathy for you to really put your feet in their shoes and for you to realize what they do understand or what they need to understand about how to make progression on their own. Because there's going to reach a time with all your patients that you're going to say goodbye to them, that you're going to hopefully have that happy discharge with them. What are those things that you want them to remember whenever they're doing their therapy on their own? And that's where, like like Tim said, that there's many different ways to do that through demonstration, which is one of my favorites. But I also, I'm a personal fan of using a lot of different analogies. I feel like whenever I was first out of school, and definitely as a student too, I would overhear a lot of different other um, clinicians that I really respected. And whenever they would say something, I mean, some of their words just came out like honey that you just think, oh man, if I could just talk like that person could talk. Oh, if I could just have my patients buy in like their patients buy in, I would be one, one more step successful. And so for me, I just started to collect a lot of different analogies. And so with my patients, especially in terms of verbal communication, I like to use different things that, that they're maybe more aware of everyday things rather than the biomechanical world that we live in as physical therapists. I like it. And at the onset of this, I promised pepper grinders and rubber tires. So I think let's hit the first one. I just said pepper tires and rubber grinders. Wow. I did not <laughs> promise that to anybody. If someone could pull that into analogy, that would be really That's impressive. called a spoonerism. Yes. We spoonerized that very nicely. How about a pepper grinder and a rubber tire? I think that might be a little more successful for us. <laughs> Andrew, I know you've got the pepper grinder down. Do you want to take us through how you oh, use absolutely. that in the clinic? I mean, a lot of times I use a pepper grinder analogy whenever I'm talking about cervical motion and thoracic motion, but it's, you can truly apply this to any joint in the body. But that is one that I like to refer to, especially as when it talks to rotation, that there's a couple ways you can get rotation 
of a neck. You can move the top part of your neck called your head, just like you can move the top part of a pepper grinder to get pepper. So the first way you can get pepper, you know, you, you grab the bottom, you twist the top. And that's a way that we do a lot of traditional cervical active range of motion and passive range of motion. But there's another way that a lot of people don't use, which still gets peppered. You can hold the top part of the pepper grinder and you can twist the bottom. That still makes the gears work in the same way and you can still get pepper out of it. And But what does that look like from a human body perspective? Well, that's where you don't move your head, but then you move your thoracic spine to the right and to the left as well with making sure that the head is, stayed, is fixed at a certain point. That still works a lot of the joints the same way. Yes, one way you're feeding the joints top down, as a grain suit likes to say, and the other way is making the joints work from the bottom up, but both make end ranges of motion in rotation depending on how you do it. And so whenever I, especially with patients that don't want to move their neck at all and are very fearful of that, and whenever, you know, sometimes I feel like in my early years of practice, me knowing the power of a lot of this bottom-up motion, using the bottom part of the pepper grinder motion, I'd, I'd give them homework of doing a lot of these different like little punches with their hands, which causes a lot of rotation of the thoracic spine. And I believe that they would go back, go home and maybe do a couple of them, but they wouldn't quite have the buy-in. And they'd come back and just, you know, just talking to them about their home exercise program. But I saw that there was something amiss about their adherence to that. And, and some of it was because they didn't understand what punching with their hands had anything to do with their neck. That I'm using a driver really far away from the part that hurts that they chose not to do it because it did not make logical sense to them why they have to move a hand to get their neck to feel better. Once I started to describe things in this pepper grinder way, an analogy way, I feel like a lot more people truly understood what I was getting at and that they bought more into it and they did their home exercise more often, which yielded better results, at least for them and also for me. That makes perfect sense. And I mean, I have to say, I have definitely found very often I get better success going from a body on head movement than as you said the head on body the more traditional way we move about it yeah it might invert the cascade of how the movement actually occurs at each level but it doesn't change the ultimate end mobility you're trying to achieve at each individual level and everyone else feel successful with this or any other tweaks you like to do upon it no and i can just say after because andrew mentioned the pepper grinder analogy in our regional interdependence and i went home to my pepper grinder and i'm like huh how do i use my pepper grinder well I was like Andrew said, and I twist the top. So when I went back and I talked to my next patient that had cervical spine pathology and they were like, gosh, you know, why aren't we moving my head? I'm like, well, do you want to get dizzy and do you want to wear it out? Or do you want to feed the joints that can really help create longevity because you're unlocking something that doesn't typically get moved? Um, so that was a very enlightening analogy that Andrew taught me that has greatly helped with my ability to connect with patients and unlocking a joint or a, a series of joints that really need to be moved and grooved on a regular basis. So you've given us a, a top down and a bottom up. So two different ways of achieving mobility and gross motion. Uh, I know you can go Houdini on us and give us five different varieties. Andrew, could you explain how you can achieve motion five different ways at the same joint? Yeah. Well, and that's, uh, so mind you now, this, this is where the pepper grinder analogy makes more sense to me. This is not a step that I typically take with my patients, but definitely with my students, I, I do. Um, something that in the Gray Institute that they can teach is that there's five different ways you can get a joint moving to get the in joint motion. So let's just talk about right cervical rotation, just say. And so with right cervical rotation, using the pepper grinder analogy, you can move your head to the right. 
that that's one way. You just move the top only. You don't move the bottom. Or you can take the bottom part, your thoracic spine, and move it to the left. As long as your head or the top part of the, top part of the pepper grinder is staying still, that still gives you relative right rotation. So that's one and two. And that's only with one part moving and the other part not. And so now this is where it gets a little bit sticky. So if you have to replay this in your podcast, please do. If you have any questions about it, please don't hesitate to contact us. Or you can look, find a, a Gray Institute fellow and ask them, because some of this treatment really has, has benefited me to realize that there's another three ways you can get that right cervical rotation. The, the, the third one, which is a, a really easy one, is that you move your head to the right as you twist your chest to the left. So you're moving the top down and the bottom up in the opposing direction, so you just get to that relative end range sooner. Does that make sense, guys? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. We're all sitting here doing hey, the perfect. same that's, thing that you're explaining. All right. So the, the last two are probably the toughest cells. And this is where I usually talk with my hands. And, and so that's something that as a audio podcast, you're not going to be able to get. But this is wherever speed has a big component to it. Because so, so far for the first three, it doesn't matter how fast you go with them or to how slow it goes. As long as you keep on going down that path of movement, you will, re, you will get to that same end range. So the fourth and fifth one, to get relative right rotation, you can twist your head to the left slower, but then you can twist your chest to the right more quickly. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. Wait, no, sorry. I, I, I might have said that a little bit opposite, so let, let me rephrase <laughs> that. So in order to get relative right rotation, you can turn your head slowly to the left, okay? So you're saying you're going in the opposite direction that you want to get into, but then as long as you're twisting your your chest more quickly to the left, sorry, I said that wrong (laughs) the first time, that you'll still get relative right rotation. So it's a speed variable. Does that make sense? Yeah, so to repeat it, you're chest rotating left is faster than your head rotating left correct 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 and so at the very end of the day you're still getting that right relative cervical rotation and so if you see that one i think that was the easiest to see in your mind's eye then the next one is exactly the opposite of that as long as your chest if your chest is rotating towards the right slower than your head is rotating to the right you will still get that relative right rotation. So it all has to do with speed. And what is really tough about those last two is seeing how speed definitely can change how quickly a, a joint motion can be obtained. And but how I view a, a lot of upright function, that's how, how we all basically move when we walk. We have so many moving parts, some moving faster, some moving slower, that very rarely when we walk, when we move, is there a point of our body that is not moving. And so very rarely in life do we ever have those first three criteria ever made where just one part is moving on a fixed other part. I mean, I guess if you're sitting and you're, and you're backing out of, out of your, um, backing out with your car and you're looking over your shoulder, it is, it is fixed. But whenever you're standing, whenever your feet are on the ground, there's a lot of movement happening all at the same time. And whenever you can train your body, train your mind to see how a person's body moves at different speeds, you'll be able to appreciate what end range motion they're achieving more quickly than others. Does that make sense? 
It makes perfect sense. And those are two very, those last two are very, very powerful uh, methods to improve someone's emotion and, and have fun with your patients at the same time. So thank you for sharing. And I think it ties in really nicely to something we talked about earlier. Dan talked about there being somewhere between 7 and 77 different ways to answer a question. Well, I'm sure the same thing applies to how a person, our patient moves. I mean, we've all had that individual that we might write off as a motor moron right away. So do we keep trying to hammer the same thing home or do we attack from a different way, attack from a different capacity? It might be, uh, as an Andrew's example, that they are not very successful with just general head motion and they feel better or more comfortable doing body on head or maybe even a left rotation to get the relative right rotation depending upon varying speeds. But it also might be they just find a way they're more successful in general. It's not even pain limited. They just are able to connect and get the ideas and draw it together. Again, learning doesn't have to be just a mental grasp of a concept. It could also be the physical components of how they move. I find it interesting that we've been talking about getting patients better and teaching them home programs, and we've rarely used the word exercise. We've said move. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a key thing for young therapists to talk to think about is that it's not an exercise it's a movement and it's you are moving their body um, to achieve a result or or improve function not an exercise of three sets of ten. Oh definitely I think that makes a very important point like you said that we all need to understand and appreciate and sometimes we can slip from our minds. So I have the pepper grinder box checked. Dan can you check my rubber tire box? I can try to check your rubber tire box. So the rubber tire box. <laughs> uh, so I use this a lot with my patients that have uh, hip labral pathology, which is a increasingly common diagnosis, and it's the thing that the you know physician wants to inject all the time, and or they want to go and have this hip arthroscopy performed. And hopefully, you're seeing a lot of people also that say, you know what? Mm, no, I'd rather try this conservatively. So when you get that person in, my analogy related to the tire is they're in a wear pattern, and that's what's created the labral pathology. So what do we do on car tires every so often? Well, if you live in Texas or Arizona, you're probably taking your tires to discount tire and getting them rotated and balanced and aligned. We need to do the exact same thing with our labrum. We need to do the exact same thing with a meniscal pathology. We need to do the exact same thing with a shoulder labral pathology. We need to do the exact same thing with a Taylor dome osteoarthritis. We need to change the pattern that that tire is getting worn out on. Well, the vast majority of our people move in what plane of motion? Sagittal. I would agree. What plane of motion do they typically get their groove wear pattern in? Sagittal, right? And they typically have that mm, 10 to 12, 9 to 1, maybe 9 to 2 wear pattern on their labrum, right? Well, that's superiorly. Hmm. I wonder why. So when I start to say, hey, what my job is, is to get you out of that wear pattern, get you out of that constant grinding across that tissue and we're going to do it by moving in the different planes of motion even if we change that wear pattern and that that positioning by a quarter of a millimeter hopefully that's enough to increase the longevity across that 
joint structure, decrease some symptoms, and grossly increase function. I like it. And I want to ask a question, Andrew. I'm going to put you on the spot for a second. So we talked about five different ways to achieve cervical motion. I'm going to let you pick any hip motion you would choose, but can you take us through different ways of achieving mobility at the hip for whatever direction you would like to go with? Well, good question. I mean, I, this is where I like taking that analogy a little bit step further. What Dan said, when you get your tires balanced and rotated, what do they actually do to, to the balance of it? And this is where I've had patients that have been car mechanics and they definitely understand whenever you're talking about changing the left and right angulation. I believe in car mechanic terms, don't, don't uh, call me on this, but I think that's called the camber and to where you can slant that angle in or, or out. You can make that person's tire, as, as a car person say, toe in or toe out. And so that's truly how you can get that left and right motion. Well, as far as the human body is concerned, a lot of that is truly the frontal plane of motion to where you can achieve a different wear pattern by manipulating that frontal plane. And that can be a very, very powerful way to change that how that sagittal plane um, hip wear pattern lies just to, so instead of just doing a straight on squat can you do a squat with a little bit of a pelvic side glide over to this over to the left or to the right you want to make sure you're not infl inflaming any kind of um label issue adding too much adduction to that but honestly playing around with that can be very very successful with that being said, I would say one of my first go-to ones is actually be through the transverse plane. And this is where, for a car person, this is where you'd say, this is why you take the left front tire and you change it to the right rear tire. That that actually flips around the tire. It gives a mirror image of the tire so that the whole opposite aspect of it will be worn. I view the transverse plane a lot like that. The fact that whenever you are actually making a person's hip joint open up a little bit more, close down a little bit more You in the transverse plane, internal external rotation, you can get a dramatically different kind of, of wear pattern on it. And if you don't believe me, stand up right now, do a straight squat the way that they taught you in PT school. Okay? Stand up again. All right, now turn your toes in all the way and try to do the same squat. Tell me you don't feel that differently in your hips. If that kind of hurt, do the opposite. Turn your toes all the way out as far, as far as you can. So you're more doing a squat like a ballerina does, a plie. Squat down like that. Tell me you feel that differently. Not only does the muscle activation change, but so does the joint biomechanics change. So to answer your question fully, Paul, which plane do I go, go to? I say yes. But more importantly, I am, I'm looking for ways that I can change how that wear pattern how, is based on how, how it forms. And for most often, more often than not, my patient pretty much tells me which ones they like to go through. If I can teach someone that has pain whenever they squat down to sit on the toilet, just the normal classic way that we're taught in PT school, even if you don't go nose, uh, the, the, the knees over the toes, and I teach them that, hey, if, you, if they toe out a little bit and maybe put their foot out to the side that they can squat down without pain, do I want to teach them that so they're not going to continue to wear on their arthritic hip or or that really bad label injury to where they're where they just have to get a little bit more fluid motion in there just to open that up absolutely i'm going to teach them that that's going to be extremely functional for them is that where i want them to stay probably not but at least for that day i taught their body something that they can use 
that they can go home and be successful with a task with. And I, and I think that's great. And, and uh, one of the things that we're seeing nowadays is that uh, with the total hip procedures doing so much better, um, many of those orthopedic surgeons are not referring their patients to um, outpatient physical therapy. And you could use the same analogy that you just did because the, pers- the patient's been given a new hip and they have motion but proprioceptively and functionally that tissue has not been turned on for a long time and you can use all of those um, techniques and um, tweaks tweaks that uh, you just mentioned to improve their function post-surgery surgically um, to get them back to doing things that they that they like so I I, I like what you're saying there it, it, it has many many uh, realms of function well, and I would say the way that you just approached that, Andrew, was if we go back to the pepper grinder, that was a, you're going to hold the top and you're going to move the bottom, right? You're, you're talking about tweaking femur position or even foot position, so that would be more of a bottom-up drive, versus you could go the exact opposite and you could keep their feet stationary and you could go back up to the thoracic spine or even the pelvis and start to drive in a, a frontal plane shear or a rotation of keeping the feet stable or the femur stable and now you're going to go top down um, and I think what you know if I go back and I think about Paul's question to you on how you're going to create that is I'm going to go with wherever the patient can be successful and there are some people who the minute you tweak their feet into IR or ER it's an immediate symptom exacerbator but you keep their feet neutral and you move their pelvis in the front in the transverse plane all of a sudden it's not a symptom exacerbator and that's where you can start to be successful and and go from there i like it now we've talked about how we can use an analogy to educate a patient use an analogy to help uh, another clinician or student understand an idea or use an analogy to help another healthcare provider understand the purpose of pt we've only gone through two and i'm sure there are hundreds more of amazing things out there but i have a challenge to those listening. I want you guys to email me therapistinmotion at spoonerphysicaltherapy.com and share some of your good analogies that we can then shout out to the company. It only makes us better when we all work together and share ideas. So if you get something something really cool or something you heard when you were a rotation, like, wow, I want that. That's that's perfect. That is just music to my ears. I'm going to use that forever. Let us know because I want to know what you have to say about it. Tim, I think you have a thought. Oh, I, I was just going to have, have another one because one of the things that I was bug me or frustrate me early on was how long is this going to take and you know how long how long is it going to take for me to get better or why is that tissue so sore and and um i i I would if if i was doing a soft tissue mobilization on someone and they were they were asking what what does that feel like and i go well it kind of feels like a a piece of leather that you you threw out on the back porch for the last 15 years and so when they asked me how when they asked me how long it's going to take to get better i said well let's bring that let's bring that leather in and let's put a little conditioner on it but then let's start molding it and bending it and gently getting its um flexibility and stuff back into it and which way would i move that well i would move it in all different ways um but I tried to get them to understand their tissue, if it hasn't been moving, needed to move. And whether that was me passively doing it, them actively doing through an exercise, I wanted them to have some an analogy 
to something that they could actually have felt in their own hands. And just you said again, I heard the word move, passively move, actively move. I heard move, <laughs> just as you were touching on earlier. I don't know if anyone else noticed this, and I apologize. I'm going kind of topic change for a second, but I'd be remiss if I did not mention that Andrew managed to use plie and camber in the same podcast. I'm quite impressed by that, Andrew. Very nice vernacular. Thank you, sir. <laughs> that was impressive. I, I like that. I like that. You win word of the day, sir. <laughs> well... <laughs> Anyway, with that amazing ending, thank you all for listening. Remember, shoot us your ideas. Tim and Angie, thank you guys for joining us today. Much appreciated. Hope you guys all have a great day. Thank you.